Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is your host, digital editor Al Lunsford from Lynx. We have another great episode of the podcast for you today. We spoke with golf course architect Trip Davis, Atlanta native, University of Oklahoma alum. He's a national champion there at Oklahoma and a pretty successful amateur golfer. Um, he's got a U.S. mid-amateur win under his belt. Trip talked to us a little bit about trying to go pro out of college Trip has got a few really high-profile projects under his belt right now. Some renovation and restoration work at names like Thunderbird Country Club, a Ryder Cup venue, Atlanta Athletic Club, place where Bobby Jones called home, as well as Augusta Country Club, whose next-door neighbor is pretty well known. His firm also has some original designs. You may have heard of them if you're in that Oklahoma, Texas area where a lot of his work has been done. Old American Golf Club, Raven Nest, the Tribute Golf Links, to name a few. And with the Players' Championship coming up and golf's season really kicking into high gear, of course we had to ask Tripp what his favorite golf tournament is. And of course I'm teeing that up because that's our teed up topic of the week. So you'll like Tripp's answer. First, let's get to some of our reader answers to that question. As you could probably guess, we saw a lot of the usual suspects on this list. So posing this question, you would think most people would say the major championships, and you'd be right about that. But there were a few outliers in there, so I'm going to read you a few of our our favorite responses. Let's go for Dana, who says, The Masters by a nose ahead of the Open Championship. So much tradition at the Masters and all the coverage... We get to know the holes very well. Nothing beats Sunday afternoon slash evening at Augusta National. That's probably as close to a consensus opinion as there is in a single sport. I'm not sure you're going to find much argument to what Dana's saying there. Alas, there were some answers that deviated from that type of opinion. And when there is a disagreement, it usually has to do with the Open Championship. Not to spoil my answer, but those are probably my top two majors. Just to tease my answer a little bit, I'll give it to you at the end of all this. But Bob B. says, Getting up very early to watch as much of the Open Championship as possible is always my favorite thing to do. Having been to Scotland and England and Ireland six times, I have been lucky enough to play many of the courses thanks to their acceptance of visitor play. I also attended the Open at Royal Birkdale in 1991 and the Old Course in 2005. The UK model, of course, very popular because of their policies allowing outside play versus a lot of times you'll get the majors here in the States being played on a a private course that anyone can't just walk out and play one day. Even the public courses come with a pretty heavy price tag for that matter. This is a different one. John L. says, My buddy hosts a 27-hole annual omission invitational at our club, and this year will be the 10th one. It's all a blind draw with A and B players, and the first 18 is Ryder Cup format. The next nine are two-man scramble. Every player has to start with a six-pack per man, and it quickly goes downhill from there. It's always the Friday before Father's Day, so it is a gift to all fathers. John, I know you and your buddies are out there playing and drinking responsibly and having a great time. Speaking of the players, the aforementioned players, Robert H. says, The players at TPC Sawgrass is always the same demanding course, and it is good to know that even the very best get seriously nervous when they come to number 17 tee box. That, of course, is annually one of the most intimidating and one, and one of the most fun holes to watch in that tournament and, and on the golf schedule. 
guy named Dr. T kept it short and simple. He likes the U.S. Open by far. Why? Because it's open, baby. As long as you meet the qualifications and get through the qualifiers, anyone can play in the U.S. Open. I have to say, looking through this list, it's pretty much 50-50. It's either the Masters or it's either something else. It may even be more heavily skewed towards the Masters. Uh, Jack D., who does say the Masters at first, the best run, best TV, but he also says of the regular events, Bay Hill, he loved seeing Arnold Palmer everywhere and also stayed at the Lodge and got to speak to him one time. We'll go for one more. Tom E. says, I live in Georgia and love the Masters. However, my favorite tournament is the Open. I have played all the courses except Royal St. George's. I love when the elements have an impact on the pros' approach to playing the holes, to see how they handle it. It makes for entertaining golf, and I can compare their approach to mine. I learn a lot watching professionals and listening to commentators that I try to incorporate into my game. I feel like I have a personal connection. I teased my answers earlier. I love the Masters. That's probably the pinnacle number one for me. Also love the Open. little coffee golf is always good for the soul. Of the regular tour events, I'm a big fan and have been a few times to the Wells Fargo Championship. Shout out to Quail Hollow Golf Club. I always love going to that event, seeing the Green Mile and the test that course puts on the players. Of course, Quail is not on the regular tour schedule this year because it will host the President's Cup in late September. So Charlotte getting a big major team competition there. And I believe the Quail Hollow shifts up to TPC Potomac in the D.C. area. Thanks for your responses. I know I say it every time, but go to our website. If you don't get our newsletters, you can sign up. Click the link for Get Our Newsletters in your email, and you'll start receiving those every week. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Trip Davis. Excited to be joined today by golf course architect Trip Davis who joins us on site at Atlanta Athletic Club, where he it's one of his current projects that he's working on. Um, a lot of you probably know that name uh, and know it as a place where Bobby Jones used to play golf. Tripp is from Atlanta, so I'm sure that's a thrill for him. Uh, but Tripp, thank you for joining us. Let's just start there. What What's the status? How did, how did you get this project, and what's the status of Atlanta Athletic Club's Riverside course at this point? Well, it was... Um... Uh, I became friends with um, uh, one of the guys that's on the, that was on the selection committee. He's a, a pretty, he's a very good amateur player and met him at a couple of things uh, we had played in and um, uh, led to getting an interview. And then I worked very hard. Um, it was obviously a, a job that I would relish doing having grown up in Atlanta. Uh, I live in Oklahoma now. I went to the University of Oklahoma, met my wife there, and she's from Oklahoma, so I'm still there. But um, they they conducted a, a pretty extensive search and uh, did a, uh, I thought the process was very good, and I just worked hard and convinced them um, that, that I was the right fit. And so we are... Um, we, we basically went through a, a little over a year of planning, uh, getting, you know, permitting in place because the golf course is uh, partly on the Chattahoochee River that runs through Atlanta. And um, uh, so there were some, there were a few environmental things to deal with, some local regs to deal with. And so we got started uh, first week of January and uh, we've shaped about half of it now. Um We've moved down into holes uh, closer to the river, and um, it's going well. We've had actually really good weather, so that's been good. Perfect, perfect. I know that's uh, obviously that is a storied club. It's hosted U.S. Opens, PGA Championships on its Highlands course. The Women's Open was at the Riverside course, as well as the U.S. Amateur um, at one point. Um, so congratulations on that again. I definitely want to talk to you more about that, um, but before we get rolling into anything else just for our audience who may not be familiar with you um can you just explain 
who you are and, and how you got started in the business. Well, when I was a kid, um, for whatever reason, I, um, you know, it was, uh, I started playing junior golf for the Atlanta Junior Golf Association when I was uh, 11, I think. So that would have been 1978 um, or thereabouts. And um, it was 78 or 79 that I started playing with them. And uh, that was a time frame where yardage books had become kind of a big thing in tournament golf. You know, you started seeing a lot of, you know, the, uh, most every tour event had one. And, and so I did my own yardage books. Um, believe it or not, my mom would drive me around to courses in Atlanta that I was going to play. And I mean, I was playing, these were nine hole matches at this point. Um, but I would go and they'd let me go out and walk and I'd chart the course and I'd draw little maps and, and I became fascinated with golf course architecture in that way. And so, um, uh, I had a good junior career and went, uh, got a scholarship to the university of Oklahoma to play golf. Um, and, um, wanted to study landscape architecture when I, when I went out there, but, um, in, in doing the, uh, um, working with the, the, uh, the people that helped you with selecting classes and talking to everyone that, you know, they said landscape architecture is a very time consuming degree. Um, and you're better off doing something that'll allow you to be an athlete. And so, uh, I went back to school after I played at the university of Oklahoma, got my master's degree in landscape architecture and, um, um, had a chance to go work for some of the, you know, the bigger names, but um, also had a chance just through some connections in Oklahoma to do two state park golf courses for the state. Um, and uh, actually one was a nine hole addition and the other one was just a nine hole course to start with and got, we, we, uh, um, we did those two and I, and I really just kind of went from there. So I, one of the rare guys that didn't go work for someone, you know, Pete Dye never worked for anyone. And um, um, obviously, you know, a lot of the early guys, uh, you know, Maxwell, McKenzie, McKenzie actually did kind of work with a few guys before he started out on his own, but um, uh, it, it allowed me to learn by fire, um, which I think for me was really good because I'm a, um, I'm, I'm a, I learn better on my own, it seems like, in a lot of ways. But um, we've, um, I started my own firm in 94, and obviously not having worked for anyone, it took me a while to build some sort of reputation and and uh, just kept my head down and, and worked hard. Yeah, I listened to another uh, podcast you had done where you talked about that, um, just going out on your own and uh, it being important that, you, the mistakes you were making were yours and you, you learn from those and gain a lot of valuable experience. Um, as everyone knows, you, you gain a lot of experience from your failures. So, uh, it, that was, uh, an admirable thing to hear from you. Uh, going back to your degree, uh, I know you said you got your master's in landscape architecture. I kind of just always been curious. That's not specific to golf and, and you did your master's thesis, um, about golf, but what kinds of things day to day were you, were you learning as part of that degree? And then how do you go from there and apply that to, to the golf course? Well, when, you know, landscape architecture as a, as a, as a study is, is, um, can take on a lot of different forms. I mean, it can be a very, um, micro-oriented study. Um, most of the schools that have their landscape architecture program and their horticulture school or an ag um, uh, are more micro-oriented, although I think a lot of them have become more macro-based. The, the University of Oklahoma, where I got my master's, it's in the architecture school. Um, there's a lot of uh, emphasis on civil engineering and golf course uh, construction um, aptly put to me one time is about drainage, drainage, and drainage. And, 
Um, so I, the background I had in school relative to drainage and grading was, was very helpful. I, I learned um, a lot about drainage, a lot of stuff I still use today. Actually, we had a meeting yesterday talking about uh, the drainage on the fourth hole here, which is, is relatively flat. Um, and even though you can put a lot of movement in the ground to create, to eliminate that flatness, the, the, the natural plane of the ground is still flat. So how do you drain that? And, and I was showing the guys yesterday how we move water through drain basins when you don't have fall in the, you know, from one place to the other. And things I learned back in my civil engineering one and two classes in, in college. So um, you're right. I mean, it's not a, a golf course design degree, but golf course design is really, um, you know, it's hard to put a percentage on it, but I'd say, you know, it's, it's mostly technical. It's mostly moving water, grading ground, um, uh, working with people to select the right grasses and so forth. And then really a, a small part of a successful golf course construction project is about the play of the game, um, which is at the end of the day is the most important part of it. Um, and that's one of the things I think I bring um, because of my background as a player. Um, I understand how the game is played and I've been able to, especially in learning on my own to some extent, I've been able to learn how to adapt that to the technical, the artistic side of what we do. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I think I've been fortunate to have a good background for what, what I do now. Yeah. We may have to have a conversation after this. I, I just bought a house. So my dad has been very worried about the, uh, drainage underneath our, in our crawl space and making sure there's no water sitting down there, getting any moisture. Um, so I, I may, I may have to have a personal conversation with you about drainage after this. Um, but speaking to your, your playing career, I know you were a very successful player at Oklahoma and, and a proud Sooner, obviously you went back to get your masters there. Um, but you were an all American, you were part of that 89 championship team. I'm just going to lob a grenade at you right now and ask you your top five or maybe top three. So a, a given number, Oklahoma athletes of all time, your favorites. There's a lot out there. <laughs> so we got, I know, I mean, people probably forget Anthony Kim from a golf standpoint was a big name in Oklahoma. You got the Griffin brothers in basketball, Trey Young. I mean, Kyler Murray, Jason White, if you're going to go back that far, or the Boz even. Give it, let's, let's hear maybe your top. If you can go to five, I want to hear five, but top three well, at least. Well, I started in a, at Oklahoma in 1985, and that was when Boz was there. Um, I actually had a couple of run-ins with him, one in the mess hall where he jumped in front of me in line and pushed me to the side, and um, so that was interesting. Um, Did he know you were an athlete we, as well? Or were you, were you just a, <laughs> a bystander? I don't know if he thought of me as an athlete because, you know, we did aerobics <laughs> in the morning as our way of staying in shape. Um, but, uh, um, you know, that's one of the things I really liked about Oklahoma before I went there. I mean, um, my uncle was a college basketball player and was, uh, in sports administration his whole life. And, and one of the things he told me was to go to a school that has a good athletic department, um, irregardless of how the golf team is at the moment, because he said, you know, there'll, there'll be changes. And you want to go to a school that's going that has a strong tradition for athletic excellence because they're going to support the golf program. Um, and that happened my, in the middle of my freshman year, the coach left, uh, the coach that had recruited me. And um, um, so Oklahoma, you know, it's uh, um, without sounding too cliche and without sounding, you know, too. Um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but. Uh, there's a there's a commitment to excellence there, and and uh, it breeds uh, a, an attitude of success. Um, not only I think it, it you know it, it extends into the the general university uh, culture. Um, but as far as the best player, you know the best athletes there. Uh, Trey Young actually played uh, at high, played high school basketball at Norman North, where my kids went to school. And so 
um, we knew him a little bit. Um, you know, great athlete. He's obviously done great things here in Atlanta. Um, Basketball-wise, I think, you know, Stacy King was maybe the best basketball player that I saw when I was there. Um, you know, really, really good. Football-wise, you know, we had – I mean, you can – you know, you can pick from, but I like Baker Mayfield, his attitude. Um, you know, some people didn't necessarily like it, but he was, uh, uh, a lot of fun to watch. And, um, um, I went to the Rose bowl when we played Georgia. Um, and, and, you know, to see the way he carried himself throughout that entire game was amazing, but, you know, he's just, a um, you know, arguably maybe one of the best college football players ever, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, we had, um, quite frankly, at Oklahoma, they have a strong tradition of the gymnastics being exceptionally good. And I lived on the, in the same dorm with those guys, and they're the best athletes um, mm-hmm. among those guys. And I don't remember any of the names, really. But, you know, when I was in school, um, the women's team and the men's team both were um, exceptional. So, um, I got to know Steve Owens a little bit, um, um, who was a Heisman Trophy winner there. Um, but, you know, the, the, the tradition for sports there is unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, a lot of names. You could just go down the list, uh, and, and name a lot of very popular, uh, very accomplished athletes, but, um, yeah, obviously a storied program there at Oklahoma and must have been fun to be a part of. Do you, the, the rivalry in most sports is Texas with Oklahoma, but in golf, it tends to be Oklahoma State that mm-hmm. has been the serious golf rival. Do you remember how you fared against them? Does, does that I, stick I know out? exactly how we fared against them. Yeah. Um, in the four years I was there, we were one in seven against them in the big, in the big eight, which was now, you know, there's now the big 12 and the national tournament. So, you know, we played two of those a year and, and in the four years I was there, we were one in seven. And, uh, uh, the one year we beat them, we won the national championship. Um, oh, perfect. We tied them, um, in the conference tournament, my senior year, and there was no provision for a playoff. Um, but our coach um, got the wild hair that we needed to play it off. And Mike Holder, who had, you know, 20 something conference championships, was like, oh, okay, sure. And we had two freshmen, and, you know, they were a senior laden team. <laughs> and playoff didn't go so well. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, yeah, we, it was definitely uh, a point of emphasis. I mean, my first tournament as a, I was told to not be intimidated by them. And uh, we actually uh, were paired with them the first two rounds of my first tournament. And I played with EJ Fister both rounds, uh, who is a great, you know, lovable teddy bear, really. And, and uh, but there were a couple of times where, you know, I had to puff my chest out a little bit to keep him from intimidating me. Well, that's awesome that you, you know, it sticks out. I, mean, I don't know if it's like that with all of your golf tournaments over the years, but, um, you know, same for me with like Duke Carolina games. That's that mm-hmm. those just 10, you just remember every moment. Um, when you tried to, when you gave it your shot at going pro, uh, and we're facing the, the next level of competition, what, what was the biggest difference that you noticed right away and in terms of you know this isn't college golf anymore this is going to take it was uh, a lot of it was uh the mindset towards scoring um and uh which is something that's really helped me carry forward into what i do now but the the mindset of scoring uh for you know a, a professional golfer then um was um um was really centered around um, not making mistakes and and but the difference being is that at the professional level you you didn't play to not make mistakes you had a strategy you played the game aggressively towards um, um, not making bogeys but you know putting yourself in position to make birdies and uh, 
Um, great example is I think it was my second tournament as a pro. I shot uh, 67 or something in the first round at, at the Bogey Hills Invitational, but which at the time was one of the biggest uh, mini tour events out there. We didn't have the Hogan Tour yet. Um, that came later the next year. And, and uh, so, in, you know, and I was traveling around with Glenn Day then, and I went back up to the course to hit some balls because I played in the morning and I started hanging around the, the, the leaderboard or the scoreboard. And Glenn came over after he finished and he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking to see what the cut is. And he said, you shot 67. You're like in 10th place and you're worried about what the cut is. And that was one thing I, I, I noticed. And I didn't really have that that right mindset. Part of it was because, you know, Al, I was, a, I had a very good short game, but I wasn't a very good ball striker, um, you know, compared to those guys. Um, and so my game worked in college and, uh, you know, I've told a lot of people that if, if I could hit the ball the way I could, when I was about 35, um, I could have tried to play. Um, um, but, um, um, mindset, um, one on the course, second was off the course. You had to have a comfort level with being on the road all the time, uh, which is something I've had to learn to do in my profession now. And then um, uh, ball striking ability. Um, you know, when you play with the guys that, uh, that, that make it out there, the ball comes off the club face differently. And uh, it's not necessarily always just, you know, wow. It's just that this guy never misses a shot, you know, and, um, I got to play with a lot of good. Steve Stricker sticks out in my mind as a guy that I played a little bit of mini tour golf with that uh, had a great short game, but he combined that with a ball striking ability where he just didn't make mistakes. And that, that is um, the way it was then. I'll I will tell you that the way it is now is a little different because I was, I did get my amateur status back and I was able to play amateur golf at a much higher level than I did actually when I was in college, I played, uh, I mean, I think I got to where I was like 10th in the country as an amateur at one point. And so I got to play in some events with Dustin Johnson and, and Gary Woodland and a lot of those guys. And, you know, and, and when they were coming up, the mindset had changed. It was less about making mistakes and more about how aggressive can you be? You know, I was seeing these guys hit driver where I was hitting five wood or three wood or something. Um they were they were trying to overpower the golf course, which is the big difference between when I was playing uh, the, the little bit of time I played professional golf in the you know late and early nineties or eighty nine and ninety uh, to now, um, and that started in really the mid you know like two thousand three two thousand four is where I saw a, a switch. Mm -hmm. How do you think your ability uh, and your perspective as a as a pretty good player? I mean, you won the the 03 U.S. Mid Amateur, um, at, along with your collegiate career and and short pro career, uh, how do you think your perspective lends you to now your current career? Um, and you talk about you know you weren't the longest hitter. That kind of relates to most of the people you're building golf courses for are weekend players who. You're still probably hitting it farther than them, but it's more relatable, I guess. You know, how do, how do you think that helps you when you approach a project? Well, you know, the there's obviously when you're designing a golf course, you're the the objective. Um, uh, in in a lot of places, now it's not the, the case everywhere, but like for instance, at the Atlanta Athletic Club, uh, when we you know have work at Oak Tree in Oklahoma and uh, some other places, you know, the, the objective is to get the golf course to where it's capable of, of challenging, you know, uh, the best players in the state to the best players in the country to, you know, um, now the best places and, you know, the best players in the world, and then still make it to where it's enjoyable to play by the, uh, the average player. And um, so what I've learned over time, Al, is that, you know, the better players, especially in the modern era, um, the way you challenge them is creating smaller margins for error for the type of shots that they need to hit in order to shoot the scores that they want to shoot. And you can do that in a way that still gives the average player 
um, wider margins for error. Um, and so it's that's in the most simplest of terms. That's the way that I look at it. And um, you 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 spend a lot of time understanding the way that all players play the game. Um, if you're not a good player, you've got to learn how to um, how as an architect, you've got to learn how the better players play. If you're a better player, you need to spend some time learning how the average player plays. So it's a little bit of a balance, but um, um, you're designing in large measure, it, it, it ultimately comes down to designing to create smaller margins for error for the better players and allowing wider margins for error for the, the average player. And one other thing that kind of brings those two things together is, is, uh, is the mental aspect of the game for the better players is largely about trying to overcome the, the, the thought that there's a conservative shot over here that I can play. Um, if I play conservatively all day long, though, I'm not going to probably be up there uh, as it relates to score with the rest of the field. And but those the, the way in which we create wider margins for error for that average player, you know, wider fairway on a certain part of the hole, uh, an entry to the green that it gives them a chance to play that way. Those things mentally actually impact the better player because um, I've learned and. If you look at Pete Dye golf courses in particular, you'll notice that he always gives you a little bit of a safe place to play. Um, you can be conservative on his golf courses and mentally what that does to the better player is it doesn't define the way that they can play the golf course. If a golf course is just completely penal um, and every shot requires the utmost focus and um it, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it becomes easier for that better player because you tell the better player what to do and you don't give them many options. Um, they're going to hit those shots pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, that's what I've learned and how you integrate those two, Al, is, is uh, you can give the player um, that's a 10 handicap enough margin for error. A lot of it has to do with tee placements, too. Um, and, then, and then have the option, especially at the greens, to be able to set some hole locations, speed the greens up, make them a little firmer to where you create these smaller margins for error that, that challenge scoring better. That's interesting that, you know, maybe a, a really good player might lose a little bit of focus just knowing that if they don't hit a perfect shot, then they may not end up in a very bad position mm -hmm. um, versus – you know, you have to hit this shot or you're screwed. So, yeah, yeah there's a, there's a fine line. I mean, some shots can become so scary that, you know, they, they make it, you know, the 17th sawgrass is a good example um, where um, I'm amazed that, you know, having played there a couple of times, I'm amazed that the guys that when that pins in that back right location there and the wind's blowing a little bit, how many of those guys that are, in the lead or near the lead fired at that flag. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that tells you there that, man, I mean, even though it's a scary shot, if they're really in their uh, realm focus wise, they'll hit it at anything. And uh, the more danger there is around it, sometimes that, that just aids in that focus. Yeah. Ricky Fowler, Sergio Garcia doing that. Both of those immediately yeah. popped into my mind when you said that, but mm -hmm. um you know, I think everyone who, who has a career where they enjoy their work has a, a moment or two where they kind of have to pinch themselves and, and say, I, you know, I can't believe I get to do this. Do you have a moment, uh, either a project or, or just a point in your career uh, where you said this is pretty incredible that not, not that I get to do this, but that I've built my career to the point where I am doing this? You know, it's a, that's an interesting subject for um, a lot of people and whatever it is that you do, Al. I mean, you know, you uh, um, if you revel too much in what it is that you're getting to do, um, I think sometimes you can forget to do it. And, um, uh, it, it, I, you know, and honestly... Um, there's been a, a couple of times here, actually, probably more so than anywhere before, um, where my shaper and I, Jason Gold, Jason has worked with me for 16 years. Uh, I never really learned how to shape 
on a dozer, I've learned how to shape on a box plate and on a sand probe around greens prim primarily. But he and I were walking around up at number nine, um, not long after we got started. And uh, he just kind of looked at me and he goes, this has got to be really cool for you. And, uh, um, and, and he was right. But, you know, you have to get yourself out of that quickly. You got to sure. get yourself back in the mindset of this is a job. And, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of times where you, um, you know, and especially at the end of a project. Um, and for me, a lot of it is before we grass, when we've got everything built, everything's shaped, everything's ready for grass. That's one of those moments that on any project you do, no matter where it is, that uh, it's extremely satisfying. And one of my favorite things to do is uh, when we're at that stage at any part of a golf course is to hang around towards the end of the day and just walk out there and, 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 and look at it. I mean, that becomes emotional. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, that's smelling the roses as I think. Um, um, what was the, what was the, the player's name that uh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name that, uh, uh, said you got to stop and smell the roses. Uh, um, uh, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, the 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 guy that was a boozer that you know that played in the 1920s uh, that won um, a bunch of PGA championships in particular. What's his name? Anyway, um, <laughs> I'll remember it here in about 30 minutes. I'm stuck. Um, but. Uh, that's when you smell the roses. Um, but with any job, I mean, you know, um, the part of it too, is I'm sure you feel this is that you want to get up in the morning and get going to do your work. And, um, that's a part of it as well. That, that really helps you to enjoy what you're doing, but you got to keep it a job. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. More fun to build or work on. Par three, par four, par five. Well, the par threes are um, the challenge with par threes is making them uh, have variety. Um, and um, um, par threes are generally easier to locate. You know, if if you're doing a renovation, you know, a lot of times it's there for you. But if you're going to re design a little bit of the golf course like we've done here at Atlanta Athletic Club. We're building a completely new par three. Um, those are a little bit easier to see um, because they're shorter and you're, you're, the ground you're working on uh, is a little bit less uh, uh, complex to be able to make that link work. Um, par fours, again, you've got to, you know, you're focused in more on, you know, a lot on variety. And I guess you, you know, when I think about it, Al, you're really thinking about that for all the holes you're doing. But um, um, I would say that par fives are probably a little easier to design with variety because you have length and you have more room to work with. Um, shorter par fours to me are easier because of the perspective I have but they're hard to do well. Um, you've got to include a lot of variety in those holes. Um, probably one of the easier holes to build is the long, difficult par four. Um, it's just length and you're, and you're focused on making that a point in the round that is a challenge for all the players. But um, I, I would say that I have probably a lot of, you know, in terms of fun, in terms of ease, I think par fives may be the easiest. Um, I think par threes are the hardest to do well, um, but uh, maybe a little bit easier to find the framework. It's uh, you got to look at all three of those holes a little differently. Yeah, I like that answer. B bigger canvas with the par five gives you a little bit more flexibility. Um, yeah. So you you mentioned that par three that you were doing at Atlanta, and I talked to you before we started. Um, I have a, a sketch, and I want to kind of break down your thought process with how you approached um, the redesign of the, of the new third hole there at the Riverside Atlantic, Adla excuse me, Atlanta Athletic Club. Um, I'm going to put this, I have the picture, I'm going to put it on the landing page on our website. So if you're listening to this now, um, if you take a second, 
to go to our website and the podcast page, you can kind of get a, a visual of what we're talking about here. Um, so essentially what you did with your work was it was initially a par five, tough par four, and then another par five to start that course. And you decided to instead make a par three. So, so what's the, the thought process and what are we looking at now with the new hole? Well, fundamentally, one of the things that we were looking at uh, when I first uh, was hired and started doing, actually, even before I got hired, we had been asked to come up with some concepts and some, um, one of the first things I came up, uh, you know, came to Al was that you started the golf course with a fairly long par five. You played a, a mid-length but relatively tough par four. And then you played another par five that, uh, especially for the average player, was a very difficult hole because it had a lake that bisected the hole, sat out in front of the green. And uh, even some ladies actually had to plod their way along the left side of the lake. And so um, that with some of the things that we saw on the back nine um, led us to thinking about how the flow of the golf course could be better. Uh, irrespective of whether or not three was going to be a par three or whatever it may be, we fundamentally uh, determined that the flow of the golf course could be better. Um, not only on the first few holes, but as we got into the middle of the back nine, um, we looked at it and said, you know, the, um, the flow for uh, not only the average player, but for the better player could just be more varied, be uh, more interesting. And so we looked at um, the third hole as being one of the pariahs in that, that uh, um, situation. Um, and uh, um, so we looked at how can we take that hole and do something different with it? We knew we didn't want it to be a par five. And uh, so we, we looked at the land for three, four and five, which are some of the more interesting parts of the, of the property because if you get down to the river, uh, you have these interesting views. And, and really a pretty interesting, cool stand of pine trees and, and, and little bits of roll. And so we first looked at uh, maybe making three a par four um, and then uh, making um, the fourth hole, a short par three that played out to the river. Um, uh, and, and then we, we pretty well had always kind of figured on the fifth hole being a par five that played to the current fifth green. And um, so we went back and forth on whether or not um, three should be a par three or four should be um, um, a par three. And what I kind of came to the conclusion of is that um, kind of going back to your, your question about which is easier to design a par three or a par four. If we made the third hole a par four, it was going to be, we were going to stretch out a fairly flat piece of ground through there, and uh, the third hole would have been in, would have ended up being um, a, a a blandish par four because it was going to be straight. It was going to be over generally flat ground. It wasn't going to have a whole lot going to it. And I guess going back to your question about par threes is you can take a, a uh, an uneventful piece of ground or a bland piece of ground, and you can move a little bit of dirt around and create a really interesting par three. Um, a lot harder to do with a par four because um, you've got, you're stretched out more. Um, and uh, so we ended up deciding that we could build a really good third hole as a par three over that start of the ground. Um, and then use the river as one of the ways in which we created a lot more interest to that par four. Um, um, so, um, that was the thinking. We also thought a little bit about the, you know, the speed of play, flow of play and so forth. And, um, um, five is going to end up being, you know, especially for some of the better players is going to be a, a little bit more reachable of a par five than the first hole will be. And, uh, if you had a short par three, um, especially one where you had the river behind the green and so forth, and you followed up that up with a par five, you were going to slow down play. Um, and maybe not necessarily slow the overall round down, but you were going to bog right there. Um, I did a, I was on a committee with the American Society of Golf Course Architects where we met with the USTA up in Far Hills and went to the symposium about speed of play. And one of the 
the speakers there made a great point that that came back to my thinking on this you know situation where think of golfers as a train and um uh, it, they don't mind if the round takes 15 minutes longer, if the flow is good, if they're not waiting at some point, they don't just come to a stop at some point. Um, and that's what I saw in making four a par three and then five a par five is that we were going to end up with this point where the train just stopped. And uh, so that was part of the thinking, but probably more so the thought that we could build a short, interesting par three on that less descript piece of ground and use the better part of the property for the par four. Gotcha. So was that something that you knew that you were going to do when you were giving your proposal to the club to consider you? Had you already kind of thought that through, or was it something that once you got the job and you were on site and starting to dig in, then you kind of visualized and, and began thinking about that? Well, the way they went through the process, they wanted us to come up with some general concepts and some more definitive concepts. And, um, you know, and they had a budget in mind. And so, um, um, you know, obviously taking uh, three, four and five and building completely new holes would be a little more expensive uh, than if you would have renovated what was there. And uh, so I actually presented it both ways um, uh, to where we you know, kept three, four, and five generally the way they were. And then, and then I said, well, we could also do this. And I said, I think this is more interesting and better. And it, and it was the same way on the back nine now, because currently the 12th hole is a long par four. 13 is a short, relatively awkward par five that doesn't give you as much root view of the river as it should. And then 14 was a, um, a, a mid-length par four that played along the river that had a very awkward tee shot. And, and so, you know, I looked at those holes and we changed those around to where now 12 is a par five, 13 is a par four with a much better relationship uh, to the river. It's a, uh, it's a far better hole. Um, uh, and then we made 14 along the river, a drivable par four, even from the ladies tees. I mean, we've got a tee up there that, that plays about 180 yards to the front of the green. And so um, that was also an option. I said, you know, we can renovate what's here. We can do these things and it'll cost a little bit more, but it's better. Mm -hmm. And so um, to their credit, um, the club was all about what's better. And, um, um, and so that's how we, we worked into it. I would say we probably didn't completely decide on that, those changes until, we had met with the finance committee and sure. yeah, you know, yeah. after I'd been hired and, you know, and they said, yeah, we can, we can make that work. Sure. All right. I got a couple more for you before I let you go. Um, it's a two part question for you. I know you blazed your own trail. So you, you weren't, you didn't come up working for anyone. Um, but do you have someone who you consider to be your, uh, a big influence on you from a design standpoint in terms of a, uh, an architect, maybe still with us or, or from the past. Um, and then is, is there someone, uh, else, one of your peers in the field right now that you really admire? Um, well, you know, when I went to the university of Oklahoma, we played on a Perry Maxwell golf course. Um, and, uh, the more I studied Perry, um, um, the way that he built greens has been a huge influence on the way that I do greens. Uh, largely, um, um, you know, the simplest way to explain Perry Maxwell greens is that uh, they, they fall off in a number of different directions. Not that the greens are completely crowned, like you might think of a old Ross course, especially Pinehurst. But then he had good greens. You know, they'd fall to the front, they'd fall to the side, sometimes fell to the back. And that created interest in putting. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, my strength in my game was my short game, my putting. And so it led me to um, look at the way Perry had done greens. And, and that was a, a significant influence. I think I, I played a lot of tournament golf um, um, early in my amateur career on, on Tillinghast courses. And I, the way that Tillinghast set up uh, angles 
um, and the way that he set up the flow of a golf course, you know, talking about what we're doing here at the athletic club, uh, was something that really strongly influenced me as well. Um, you know, the, in a, in a interesting sort of way, Bob Cup was, uh, a guy that really helped me understand, um, the profession. Um, he took a lot of time with me to, you know, in some ways, actually tough love, you know, of, um, you know, came down on me a couple of times about, you know, just, uh, the way that you would do things. Um, and, uh, so he was, he was, a a good friend, uh, and, you know, unfortunately passed away not too long ago, but, um, he was, you know, he was early on in my professional career was a mentor of sorts in that way. I wouldn't necessarily say that we spent a lot of time together, but I definitely watched him. Um, you know, and there's, there's so many good guys in our profession that I've watched, you know, and, uh, I can't say that I've spent a significant amount of time with any of these guys because we, we all are, you know, stretched way too thin sometimes and pulled in a lot of different directions, but I've watched Bill Coor a lot, not necessarily for his architecture, but just for the way he carries himself. Um, and Steve Smyers is, uh, is, has been probably as much as anybody in terms of being a mentor. Um, again, not necessarily the architecture because he and I look at things a little bit differently. Um, but I, I have utmost respect for the way he conducts himself, uh, for the work that he's done, you know, for meeting the objectives that he had, um, uh, those have all been very important to me. Fantastic. Um, the, in, along with Atlanta Athletic Club, um, you, you also have a couple other projects in the works right now. Can you go through what else you're working on? Um, some really familiar names for people to know. I think they'll recognize a few of these, um, but what, what else are you working on? Well, we, we are also working at Augusta Country Club. Um, we have been hired to go in and, and uh, um, in large measure, try to get the golf course back to a little bit more of its roots. Um, uh, Brian Silva did a, a restoration project in a lot, you know, probably the best way to describe it back in the early 2000s. And I thought he did an excellent job in bringing Ross back. Um, he did it with bent grass greens, which is, uh, uh, I think, uh, a little bit different from what was originally envisioned there in terms of the way that the course would play. And so, um, the day after the masters this year, we're starting with rebuilding the greens. Um, we are going to put them back a little bit closer, a lot closer to Ross's original design. Um, to reintroduce some angles, to take away some of the size of the greens that Brian put in because of bent grass, and uh, and 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 really get kind of get the lines of play back. Um, you know, stylistically, Brian nailed it when he did the renovation back in the early 2000s. So we're not really changing that. We are going back to some of the things that have evolved over time because you know, golf course in over 20 years, 25 years is going to uh, change a little bit, and so we're we're just restoring a little bit of that stylistically, but really going back to what he had reintroduced. Um, Thunderbird Country Club out in the Palm Springs area, Rancho Mirage exactly, is uh, where they played the Ryder Cup in 1955. Great old golf course that um, is, uh, uh, it's more classic in orientation. It's a little bit more of a throwback to the East um, than you would find in a desert setting. And so, um, we're trying to give it that, that more classic feel. Um, obviously when you're in the desert, you know, you end up doing some waterfalls and things like that, that just don't evoke classic design. So we're taking some of that stuff out. Um, that project will start in that. We've been doing a little bit of work over time to build up to where we have a summer where we can finish things. And, uh, so we'll work on that, uh, this year as well. And then some of the other things that, you know, we've been working with a company called Escalante Golf, which is uh, um, an ownership group um, that uh, uh, primarily owns upscale properties. And we've been working with them a lot on, on bunker renovation and, and getting their golf courses to raise that level. And 
we're working with them on a project at uh, Farm Links down in Alabama right now. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have the relationship we do with them. Um, uh, hopefully do some more stuff with them going forward. And then at Oak Tree in uh, Oklahoma, which is, is really more of a, it's not, there's, there's very little design involved, actually. We're just converting the greens to Bermuda. Um, and, uh, um, uh, and, and then just doing some functional structural work to get the bunkers to where, uh, they'll last a little bit longer, but no design changes. That's a, uh, you know, I didn't mention early on that one of my influences has really been Pete Dye. Um, I should have mentioned him as one of the, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him or know him very well at all, but, uh, strategically the, the guy's amazing. And, uh, um, so I've been working with Oak Tree for a long time. We uh, did a renovation project there in 0809. And all this is really doing is just converting the greens to Bermuda um, and then getting the bunkers back. But um, uh, we've been very fortunate now to have a lot of good opportunities. And um, it's, you know, starting out on your own and not having work for someone, um, it, it's taken a while to get to a point where, um, yeah, I think we've been doing really good work for a while, but then to have that get recognized and, and, and then have it help lead to some really cool opportunities has been, been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Congratulations again. And you've got a lot on your plate for sure. Uh, I gathered you were, uh, a Pete Dye fan from you, you'd used him as a couple of examples in our conversation earlier. So I figured as much, um, it's the perfect segue to my last question because we're about to get into the players uh, this coming week and, and really roll into, uh, you know, the meat of golf season where, where major championships start to be played and, and big events all over the schedule um, for all tours. Um, mm -hmm. So this is a question we asked our audience, and I'd, I'd love to hear your answer. Uh, your favorite golf tournament, either to, to spectate, um, it, all, it could be one you played in, um, what's your, what's your favorite tournament out there? Well, I didn't get to play in anything on tour. I did play on the Hogan tour that first year for a little while, but, um, um, I, I, I love, uh, the tournament, um, you know, the, the, the players championship from the standpoint of, um, the golf course, um, was, and still remains a golf course that doesn't favor any one type of player. And that's a, um, whether I took that from Pete or, um, and, you know, just as a player in general, I think that is where the game needs to be. And, uh, um, you know, they could play that golf course even a little shorter than they do now. And it would still not be a golf course that uh, is going to favor any one type of player. And so um, because of that, I really like to watch it. I actually, that's one of the tournaments that I'll sit down on a Sunday and watch because, uh, it gets interesting that way. Um, I've been fortunate to be able to go to the Masters a few times. And uh, um, as a spectator, I don't know how it would get any better than that. I don't know if there's a sporting event that gets any better than that. And I've been to a good many good football games. Yeah, um, yeah I'm sure. Uh, you know, walking into Owen Field at the University of Oklahoma uh, is a pretty special thing to do uh, before a football game. And, and watching a game there. But when you're on the grounds at Augusta National and you're watching the play there, um, uh, that's that's pretty cool. I, 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 I like watching the, the Open, um, uh, both of them, um, both ours and, and the one overseas. Um, I generally like to watch the British Open a little bit better. I'll call it the British Open, um, just because I think the golf courses over there tend to do the same thing. They rarely uh, favor any one type of player. And so those are my favorite tournaments to watch because uh, I think you see all players having to, to, to show that they've got a complete game. And, uh, you know, Augusta um, uh, obviously over the years has favored the longer player, but there have been moments uh, when it hasn't. And um, – uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the conditions that week. You know, if it's a little softer, um, um, 
it seems like players that aren't quite as long, oddly enough, have tended to play a little better because you can get at some hole locations uh, that they can that they that they couldn't otherwise. But um, uh, I generally like to watch those golf courses and those tournaments where the whole field has a chance to compete. Sure. Yeah. To your point, we we recently actually just did a a poll and asked people, would you rather go see the Masters or would you rather go to the Super Bowl? So we're just putting the ultimates out there and it was like 95% masters. No question. So I, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people will share that sentiment with you. Um, trip. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. I uh, really enjoy the conversation. I uh, hope we get to do it again sometime uh, in the meantime, keep up the great work uh, and look forward to, to going out and, and seeing some of your stuff that has uh, developed and is currently in the works. Thanks, Al. I appreciate it.